Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Ask an Addiction Specialist. I'm Dr. Bob Weathers, happy to be with you. And I've got my colleague in arms here, Odie Martinez. Thank you for joining us again, Odie. Thanks for having the, me again. Yeah, the dialogue is very appreciated. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to give homage to Austin Armstrong, one of my two co-producers today, along with Fran Salvatierra. Austin uh, reminds me to invite you to please submit questions as we go through today's podcast. I invite those, and Odie and I will do our best to respond to those. Also encourage you to uh, share today's podcast. You can do it in real time, sharing the link with friends of yours, as well as we now have archived uh, dozens of podcasts from Ask Addiction Specialists. You can find those at Beginnings Treatment Centers, which is one of the sponsors of our podcast each week. You can also find those at YouTube, which is another one of our sponsors. They don't know it, but they are now. And you can also find it on the Facebook group, Ask Addiction Specialist. And then finally, you can find it on my, my website, uh, www.drbobwithers.com, because I'm one of the sponsors of this week's podcast. In fact, I am in the podcast, so it's a conflict of interest. <laughs> I have to tell you guys, I just came from a group that I led at Beginnings Treatment Center. My energy is lower today. I'm, I'm uh, in an IV antibiotic treatment right now for a uh, systemic infection that followed on a, a failed shoulder surgery some eight weeks ago. I've since then had a second surgery to remove um, what was given in the first surgery. And I'm on this six week antibiotic uh, uh, treatment and I have uh, more energetic days than others. I think last week I felt like I was on and this week I'm, I'm a bit lower. Um, uh, the, the, the mass is a little bit lower. The flag is a little bit lower on the mass. One thing I want to mention, though, and I just felt it coming from this group I was just in, and I, I think I can bring it to you without apology. It's actually a wish, is that when I bring uh, when I bring this energy that I have, which today is a bit lower. In fact, somebody volunteered to bring me coffee, and I actually sipped some. I'm not a big coffee drinker, but I sipped it. It was somewhere in between mud and antifreeze, the <laughs> consistency of the coffee, but it alerted me a little bit. Uh, when I bring a lower energy, or maybe when you've experienced this too, it invites a different kind of dialogue. And so I'm actually very gratified coming from the group just now. My energy is significantly lower than, than usual. And the group stepped in, and I think it invited a kind of vulnerability in the conversation. Hmm. And uh, I'm used to being on the hyper side, and I'm not able to access that today. And so if you want to step in, hint, hint, Austin, and ask questions to engage with us, I invite that. And appreciate your good energy and just joining us today. Uh, some of you know me, you've come to visit a lot of our podcasts. We know each other in different contexts. And I'm just wanting you to know that I know that Bob Weathers is a little bit lower energy today. It's not uh, a cause for massive concern. Uh, it's just, it's a part of the process of this healing process I am uh, with the antibiotics to get through this uh, uh, bout I had with sepsis, which is kind of a systemic infection that uh, knocked me down a few notches. So here I am lower energy, but here in spirit and uh, partially in, in the flesh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, last week, our conversation was about building foundations for self-compassion. This is on the heels of our discussing uh, a lot over the last uh, several weeks, even months, about the role that shame has in originating and sustaining addiction, and also the incredibly pivotal role that unshaming uh, reducing shame 
uh, the incredible, incredibly pivotal role that has in sustaining successful recovery. In fact, we've, we've asserted here that experience of shame, that is of self-loathing, self-judgment, self-abandonment, that, that it serves as a primary, if not the primary trigger for relapse for many mm -hmm. addicts who are otherwise very sincere about recovery. And so we've unpacked that. I invite you to go back and view some of our prior podcasts to, to get some of that material in terms of definitions and clarifications. And we're moving forward from last week's presentation on building self-compassion to today's presentation, the title of which is Restoring Hope. Mm. Um, there's a psychotherapy researcher, Jerome Frank, who developed uh, what he referred to as the demoralization hypothesis. And the hypothesis is pretty much common sense. I actually think that much, if not most, of psychology uh, is common sense, and research tends to verify common sense. There are some things that it's counterintuitive, but there's a lot of that. And I think it's the case with this. Jerome Frank said that the common denominator that brings all clients into psychotherapy is one thing. And he said it was they, they've given up hope. Mm. And it stands to reason if you've consulted with your wife, with your parents, with your friends, with your loved ones, and exhausted every bit of advice that they had to give, every bit of counsel they had to give, mm -hmm. that you might finally give in and go see a therapist. But my experience over about 40 years of doing a lot of therapy and counseling is that uh, very few people come to therapy as a first resort. Even in mm -hmm. sunny Southern California, it tends not to be what people turn to initially. They come to it later. I mean, Jerome Frank, the therapy researcher I mentioned, uh, couches in terms of clients, the common denominator is that de they're demoralized. And by, by that he meant they've given up hope. Mm -hmm. And so if today's topic is relevant to addiction and recovery, you could actually broaden it. It's, it's, it covers um, all of our experiences, whether it be with depression or anxiety or certainly substance abuse and addiction, uh, is, is that uh, when we give up hope, kind of all is lost. Mm -hmm. And when we can restore hope, that's cash in the bank. And so we're going to be talking today practically around the role that hope has in relationship to shame and addiction and also um, do what we can to encourage the restoration of hope. So that's the goal for today. How does that sound so far, Odie? Sounds awesome. Are you okay? Are Looking you hopeful? Forward. Yeah, okay, very good, hopeful. Good, good, good. I am too. I am especially today really <laughs> hopeful. Okay. Um, we've talked so much about shame, and one of my central presuppositions, certainly in working with clients, and it's been hard one in terms of my own process, my own healing process, my own ongoing recovery, is to realize that shame can be healed. That shame isn't some permanent tattoo on our psyche that cannot be, over time, reduced and eventually heal significantly enough to have less of a stranglehold. I've shared here before, and I'll mm -hmm. mention it, is I think prior to 10 years ago, even six years ago, when I entered into really sincere, uh, fairly informed recovery, it took me a while to kind of get that one together, uh, is that that with all of the loss that my addiction entailed, personally, professionally, relationally, is that I was sunk by shame and I had this sense of, I didn't have it then, I have it now, in hindsight, that about 90% of the time I felt like crap about myself. Mm -hmm. I felt like I was blameworthy, something was faulty, broken with me, and I really didn't have much hope of any kind. Mm -hmm. And very gradually, over a period of years of working uh, within various treatment programs and modalities, and with a lot of sincere effort on my own part, 
and by those that love me, hope began to be restored and shame began to be reduced. Enough so that I think I can say honestly to you, Odie, is that I've got about 10% of me that's still vulnerable to shame. Mm -hmm. And who knows how much this is. How, what I do know is that I'm uh, far less likely to get sunk by shame, yeah. but I can still be shamed. Mm -hmm. I can still be shamed. And that when I am shamed, there typically is a quicker recovery time. And also the depth to which I used to go, I rarely go these days. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so I feel very... Uh, I was going to say hopeful, but it's actually, I don't know if it's hope, if it's actually your experience. I feel very confident that at least for me, who is beset by, let's say, 90% shame, that if that can be reduced down to about 10%, I'll take that. Yeah. I'm very grateful for that. Same. And I can really feel the difference with these years of inner and outer work uh, in, in what I think of as the recovery process. And what do we recover? We recover our unshamed prior self. Mm. You could say it's the self the way that God sees us, if that's a language that works for you. Mm -hmm. You could say, we've used the term here, uh, my original face before I was born, mm -hmm. which is another way of saying our true selves in terms of how God and oftentimes how others see us. Mm -hmm. We oftentimes are our worst judges. I certainly was my own worst judge. And it's like a grace beyond describing to be delivered from the jaws of 90% shame to being vulnerable to about 10% now. And so when I say that shame can be healed, I'm not just talking theory, I'm really talking not only my own experience, and I, I root a lot of what we talk about here in my own experience, but it's also embedded in my clinical work and also in my uh, thorough and ongoing review of the research literature around shame, mm -hmm. is that it can be healed. But in order for us to get to that, we must first understand the relationship between shame and hope mm -hmm. because uh, they're very closely linked. In fact, to, to put it in the clearest way, shame banishes or vanquishes or erases. Shame eradicates hope. There, in fact, today I was in a group and I asked clients to say, what's, what's their understanding of the relationship of shame and hope? Mm -hmm. And uh, one gentleman right up in front said, they're the opposite of each other, Dr. Bob. I said, that's, mm -hmm. that's just about right. That's just about right. <laughs> so I want to unpack that just for a moment, and then we're going to do an exercise. We've defined shame in the past as being two sides of a coin. One is, is um, uh, the threat of... Uh, uh, a threat to our social acceptance, the threat of being kicked out of the social group. Mm -hmm. And the flip side of that, of shame, is then a threat to our self-esteem. Yeah. And they tend to have this kind of dance with each other. Um, when, I, when I feel like I'm going to get kicked out of the group, if I feel like you're going to reject me, mm -hmm. that's going to affect how I feel about myself. And then ironically and pathetically, as I doubt myself, I come to you and I present that, you're more likely to kick me out. Mm -hmm. Because you can see there's kind of a vicious cycle built into shame. And so... What happens with shame is that if I feel like you're going to kick me out, and let's say if I'm kicking myself out, let's say with uh, impaired self-esteem, where I actually, I kick myself out before you can. Mm. And so we talked about this today in the group. It's referred to in psychology as the fundamental attribution error, mm -hmm. where I'll, I'll attribute like a mistake that you've made to circumstance. Okay. And I'll attribute a mistake I made to something broken about me, something mm. fundamentally flawed. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and uh, we're all victim to that, and this is what shame does. Shame yeah. will give you grace, Odie, from mm -hmm. me. I'll give you grace, and I won't forgive myself. And that's, mm -hmm. where, that's where shame will turn on me. And, and one of the things that goes with that 
if I turn on me or if you turn on me, if you write me off. In fact, I asked a question today in the group. I said, how many of you can identify somebody in your life that's given up hope on you? Mm-hmm. These, are, these are clients early in recovery from very severe addictions. And everybody in the room could think of at least somebody. Oftentimes, it's somebody very close, like mm. a father or a mother oh. or a beloved yeah. that's given up hope. And they just and and we didn't complain about it today. We just acknowledged with the the repeated uh, betrayals of trust. Mm-hmm. There are horrible stories that we shared today about the things that we did in active addiction in terms of stealing from people that we loved. Mm. Lying uh, is that it makes all the sense in the world that they would give up hope. But then we investigated that today to look at what that feels like. And what it feels like when somebody gives up hope on us, hope for us, or when we do that with ourselves, that it's unchangeable. Mm. You know, if if I'm a failure, you know, if you step on my toe accidentally and I say, (laughs) shame on you, I don't really literally mean shame, but just don't do that again, you'll generally correct your behavior. Uh, we make a distinction talking about shame and guilt. That would be you feel guilty. You feel bad about stepping yep. on my toe. And I want you to feel bad because that's how you'll change. Right. If you're completely without any sense of guilt, then there'd be no reason to change. Mm. Somebody mentioned today in the group, they said, that sounds like a sociopath. Yeah. Said, that is like a sociopath. <laughs> Somebody with antisocial personality disorder does not care about stepping on your toe repeatedly. And mm. they don't care about your your uh, cries for help. <laughs> you yeah. just keep doing it. But most of us aren't sociopaths. And so most of us feel a sense of guilt. But if I'll grant you grace, and I'll say, just please don't do that again. And if I step on your toe, if I won't grant me grace, what kind of lousy, uncoordinated fool would step on Odie's toe? You can see how shame comes in. And what Mm -hmm. that does is it virtually stops me in my tracks because you can change your behavior, but if I'm bad Mm -hmm. or uncoordinated, there's a real open question here. Maybe Bob can't change his behavior. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, so I I guess... uh, what played in my mind right now yeah, is that yeah, it's, yeah. I've met people before that um, they hmm. they automatically they'll do something like you say uh, you saying clumsy uncoordinated. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I've met people that say, "Oh, I'm very clumsy yeah, yeah, uncoordinated." Sure. Yeah. So uh, I guess would that be a form of what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, would like be. They're yeah. already yeah. Um, giving themselves those labels. Yeah, you know, and, yeah. and it may not even be true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's good. Let's just pick today for example. I come in today. Rest was was really interrupted for me last night. I was in a fair mm-hmm. bit of discomfort, and I woke up today. Took the IV antibiotics, and I'm about half steamed today. I'm happy to be here, but lower <laughs> energy. I'm not going to be doing any jumping jacks out in the hallway <laughs> when I leave today's <laughs> podcast. And so let's say that I come in and I do what I did. I actually introduced it to say that I'm lower energy today. This isn't necessarily bad because me being calm and putting mm-hmm. this material out of this place could actually be beneficial. I think it was to the group I just learned. Mm-hmm. But let's say I have a different narrative. Let's say that I go, I can't believe it, Bob. You know, it's been it's been three weeks since your last sur- shoulder surgery. And what kind of person gets an infection? And by the way, you shouldn't you be over that infection already? <laughs> Are you kind of weak and pathetic? You know, I could yeah. do that to myself. Mm-hmm. And there's a part of me, there's 10% of me that does do that <laughs> in truth. Yeah. I'm just not wanting it to take over. Yeah. But when it switches over, or like you say, if I stumble and, and step on your foot, in that moment, I can say, I'm sorry for being clumsy, but what if I actually believe that? Yeah. And let's just acknowledge that, let's say on a continuum, Odie, that you and I are relatively clumsy versus non-clumsy. And let's say that you're less prone to clumsy-like behaviors than me. Mm-hmm. So we can honestly say that Odie is less clumsy than Dr. Bob. 
And that's okay. That's okay. But when I turn that against myself and say, I am clumsy, mm. Odie's not. First of all, it's not accurate because you've got some clumsiness. I've right. got some clumsiness. We're humans. Mm. But you see what happens. There's a poison there because now if I consider myself clumsy and I label myself that way as opposed to you who's never clumsy, now you get into a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. Okay. Does that make yeah. sense? Yes. Because now if I walk around thinking I'm clumsy, I don't know about you guys as our listeners. I don't know about you, Odie. But if I believe something about myself, dadgummit, I'm much more likely to commit that infraction. <laughs> so voila, yeah. big surprise, right? Now I end up being clumsier. Mm. And so it's no friend to myself to label myself that way. So I think one of the goals of psychotherapy is to help clients move from what's referred to as a dispositional attribution, mm. where you feel 100% clumsy, mm -hmm. or I feel 100% weak and tired like today. Mm. Try to move from a dispositional attribution, which makes that your disposition. Your disposition is that you're a clumsy, clumsy person. It's a very different attribution than what's referred to as a situational attribution. Mm -hmm. And my goal as a counselor, as a therapist, as a coach, is to help you make that transition from this is something broken about you, clumsiness, let's say, to welcome to the human race. Can we, can we help you with your clumsiness? Mm. Can you apologize for that? Yeah. But can we not label you? Because the labels turn into a behavior, which is a situation. You, mm. you stumbled and tripped on my foot, let's say. Yeah. It turns it into a label that makes this who you are. Mm. And we all have that. I'm too tall, I'm too short. Too skinny, I'm too fat. I'm too male, I'm too mm. female. I'm too black, I'm too... I mean, we have all these labels yeah. and people use them on ourselves and then unfortunately we internalize those labels mm. and they become our reality. So I guess what we're going to do is be very judicious, very careful about the labels that we give to others. Mm -hmm. I tell this to the clients that I work with, including today. Mm -hmm. You guys are each other's best friends. Can we please not label one another mm -hmm. for our addictions, for our past? Let's be with each other in a gracious way. Mm -hmm. But that's the way it is for all of us in our lives. Imagine if your wife decided to make a laundry list of labels of things that you've done that disappoint her mm -hmm. and turn that into a dispositional attribution. That Odie, he's just a no good for nothing. You know, you, <laughs> we could all do that. Yeah. And some people do this and it afflicts them horribly because they end up very isolated because we always let each other down some part of the time yeah. but then it misses the fact that you're not all only that you're also a stand-up guy in all these other ways mm. and so one would hope that your wife and I presume that your wife doesn't form this list of static properties and then lays that label on you right. so that you walk around with a big X across your face all the time mm. and and some of us have experienced that where somebody labels you maybe you've experienced this stereotypes yeah. Mm -hmm. etc where you're labeled without even being known mm -hmm. and how horrible that feels and if I'm labeled consistently it's very hard not to take that stigma inside and it form the basis of my yeah. identity and when it forms the basis of my identity that stigma becomes shame mm -hmm. if I buy the hype mm -hmm. if I buy the labels then that's st outer stigma becomes inner shame does that make sense yeah they're, they're actually just completely sense. related to each other yeah. and what they do is they keep us stifled and stuck and so mm -hmm. there's no hope Mm. You know, there's no hope. If you label me as, as a no good for nothing sapsucker, <laughs> then there's no hope for me. Yeah. And mm. if I do that with myself, then I'm dead in the water. And so I think the client was right today to say that hope is the opposite of shame. Mm -hmm. It's the antidote. It's the solution. Um, but before we get to talking more about hope, I want to do an exercise. It's already presumed to some of what we've been talking about. So as you're watching today, I'd invite you to take out a piece of paper and just write down a few things. I think it's helpful to write things down to get them out, concretize them. Mm. I'd like you to reflect for just a moment and you're welcome to share, Austin. You're welcome to share. Austin has become my conscience. 
<laughs> I wake up in the morning and Austin, you're in my psyche. <laughs> I'd like you to think of something that you've shamed yourself about. <laughs> he winks at me. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for not shaming me, Austin. <laughs> think of something that you've shamed yourself about. And as you think of it, examine yourself in terms of what room did that leave for hope for change? So what we're doing is we want to kind of go in and examine shame within ourselves, where I feel awful about myself, or I feel like I'm rejected and worthy of being rejected. And then, and then how does my hope for change reside in that kind of matrix where there's, it's, uh, it's infected with shame? It's like sepsis of the psyche. <laughs> shame. So think of an instance where you've experienced shame, maybe profound shame, and what room was there for you to breathe with that in terms of hope? Um, Odin, I'll talk about this for a minute, and I want to invite you to share if, if you feel inclined to share. I'd appreciate it. I think there's value not only in writing these things, I think there's value in sharing them. I will respond to what you share here uh, anonymously out of respect for your confidentiality. I think it can barely be liberating to share things, especially in the arena of shame, because shame wants to do everything to be a secret. Mm -hmm. Shame wants to hide away, and if I can shine a light, seeking of lights fronts, if I can shine a light on shame, that's a step in the right direction. It's the opposite of what shame wants me to do, but it actually is curative. How about if I share an example, and nobody shares an example? I think, Sounds good. is it okay? Yeah. The example that came to my mind wasn't hard for me, I just picked early in addiction. Excuse me, early in recovery, early in recovery from addiction. I had been increasing in addictive behaviors over a course of about 15 years. It, it was a, kind of this gradual thing until it got to where it was really bad. And when I got early into recovery, the labels that others had for me, oh, you're just an addict, mm -hmm. are labels that I was already struggling with myself. And it was mm -hmm. really, really difficult for me to feel like there was any hope of my changing. I felt like I'd really screwed up royally and that I was a screw up, that there really wasn't hope for me. And as I shared earlier, it was a process over kind of month by month, year by year, uh, through practices that we'll be also including here in the next couple of weeks, practices around self-compassion, where I was able to begin to build a beachhead over against the shame and then begin to expand that beachhead to where it had less and less stranglehold for me. So. I definitely felt with that shaming message around being an addict and the way that it was used oftentimes uh, judgmentally, mm -hmm. you know, oh, you're just an addict, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I really uh, questioned whether I was going to be able to change something that had 15 years of momentum. Mm -hmm. So that, that's an example that comes quickly to mind. This example would, would come quickly to mind probably to most anybody that's in recovery. The clients I work with are able to access this more or less quickly because it's in everybody's front yard early in recovery. Mm -hmm. How about for you, Odie, um, sharing something? Yeah, so uh, two things came to mind. Uh, I'll share them quickly as I can, but um, uh, the first one, not so serious. Uh, I've shared before um, with mm -hmm. my ventures in city, city league play basketball mm -hmm. situations. Um, I gave this example before as well, where I'll be playing, and um, 
I lose the ball, for example, and it goes to the other team, and immediately I start saying, well, maybe I should sit out because I'm not doing so well. And then that turns into, well, you're also not good at the X, Y, Z, and it just starts going, you know, unless I stop it. Yeah. And then another let, one. Let me respond to that yeah, before we move on. It. That's a perfect example because it doesn't have to be monumental. You don't have to be at the edge of your life around addiction yeah. to experience shame. And it has that kind of way of insinuating itself, mm-hmm. doesn't it? Yeah. It starts off with a bad pass. And anybody that's played basketball knows that bad passes go with the game. You want to reduce those. But mm-hmm. it's like in tennis, it's rare to play uh, an, an entire game, much less an entire set, without unforced errors. Mm-hmm. That means you screwed up. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so then what I do with that or what you do with that is, is very telling. And it really quickly branches out, doesn't it? Just yeah. like this all the ways. It's like not only am I a bad passer, but I should bench myself. I'm not a good basketball player. And while we're on that theme, and there it goes. We're off to the races. Yeah. And just to, I really appreciate it, Odie. When I when yeah. I talk to clients, it takes a lot it takes a lot of courage to stand and face shame and realize this is what it does to me. Mm. The fact is it's universal. And so what you do in your courage to share it is that you give us all a chance to kind of relate to this. And one of the things that shame does is it starts off and it develops into a forest fire Mm. very quickly. There's actually a a term for it is that uh, it's called shame proneness, is that if I'm shame prone, that is I'm vulnerable to shame, the slightest trigger, it could be less than a bad pass. It could be just a thought you had yeah. or a regret that you have. It can just take over. And soon enough, a person is ground down into kind of a paralyzed ball of inertia. And mm. so I think it's yeah. a perfect example. Appreciate yeah. it. You had another example. Yeah. <clears throat> so the other one um, is mostly just a realization uh, situation where uh, I've gone to to a group before with uh, with my issue in mm-hmm. the past mm-hmm. with uh, porn addiction. Yes, thank you. And um, I, I remember when I first started going to the groups, I was like, um, yeah. my name is Odie, yeah. and mm-hmm. this is this is my addiction. Yes. And then somebody after kind of pulled me aside. Uh, they told me, uh, I understand what you mean by that, but mm-hmm. you know, try not to own it. Like okay. your your addiction, you know what I mean? So instead, of they, saying, mm-hmm, yeah. instead of saying... Instead of saying... I am an addict. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying that, she's mm-hmm. like, I am in recovery yeah, for yeah, this, yeah, which yeah. is a completely different. Because, yeah, yeah, um, and yeah. then I understood later that why he yeah. told me, pulled me aside to tell me that. Because yeah. one of them I could later use as ammunition for shame. Yes, you know, absolutely. It's like, right oh, it's, it, right, right it's mine, it. I'm yeah. no good, blah, blah, yeah, blah. Yeah. But the other one is like, well, yeah. It's bad, uh-huh. but yeah. I'm on the road yeah. to recovery. Yeah, so. yeah. I love you. I love your example. You remind me of a couple of things. Many years ago, 40 years ago, my first wife worked for a doctor. In fact, he had been my ch- uh, doctor growing up hmm. as a pediatrician, and she ended up working for him. And I remember, I think, I think Tammy told me that it was a conversation in the office. I don't think I witnessed it. I can't remember now. But whether it was my doctor or someone else in the office, they referred to a patient as, oh, that's the cancer. It'd be like, Bob, that's the cancer. Odie, oh, that's the whooping cough. And it's a shorthand. It's a shorthand. But I can remember all those years ago. I was a much younger man. I was in my, just barely 20. There's some, something struck me as odd about that is like, what happens if, if I was a doctor and I just started seeing people that way? Mm. 
And then flash forward about 30 years, I had a, well, probably 20 years, I had a client 20 years ago or more who came in and insisted that he was a certain psychiatric diagnosis. Hmm. And he says, do you see me that way? And I said, no, I don't. In fact, I don't see any clients that way. I don't see clients through a diagnostic thing. I don't see a client as a cancer or yeah. a this or that. And this client was quite insistent that he was this diagnosis. And so this going on for a few sessions was a part of every conversation. So one day I said, would it help you if we just pulled the diagnostic manual off the shelf and looked at it together? He said, yes, let's do that. So we read this particular disorder, reread it, and... He said, I guess I am that. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, how's that feel to you? And he says, it feels like crap. It's like crap to see myself that way. And I said, yeah. do you see why I don't see you that way? I don't want to see you that way. Mm. Sure, I know this diagnostic. I mean, I, I, I've taught these categories. Yeah. But to hold them so lightly, and the danger is, is that we hold that, whether mm. it's as I'm an addict of this or that, if we hold that against ourselves, you can actually take something that could possibly be positive in terms of waking us up and turn it into a millstone around our neck that drags mm. us down. Yeah. This is very dicey and not uncontroversial in recovery circles because you've been to meetings and I've been to meetings too where the presupposition is that you say, I am an addict. Mm -hmm. I'm an alcoholic, I'm an addict. And I understand the value of that. It's, I think the primary value is humility, mm -hmm. is to recognize that I'm always vulnerable yeah. to addiction. So to not mm -hmm. get too far away from that, I really understand that. But I also want to acknowledge very much in sync with you, Odie, is mm -hmm. that there's a shadow side to that for sure. Yeah. I think especially for individuals early in recovery where shame is so powerful, is on top of this, I have to make myself this thing that society says is scum of, scum of the earth. Mm. And now I'm an, I'm, I'm an alcoholic. Now I'm an addict, whether it's of a substance or a behavior. And built into that is a risk for developing this dispositional attribution I talked mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. is that if I'm an addict, does that mean I'm once an addict, always an addict? And there are mm -hmm. plenty of people in recovery that say, yes, always so. Mm -hmm. But then you have to be really careful how you talk about that yeah. because does that mean that you're going to be set upon by your addictions the rest of your life the same way you have been? Exactly. Does that mean that for me? You're going to have to really help me with a fine-tooth comb separate that out because it runs dangerously close mm. to blaming you or indicting you once and for all for this category. Yeah. I don't care if it's sex-related addictions or gambling-related addictions or substance-related addictions. Right. It doesn't matter what it is. You have to be really careful with that. There are plenty of people that would disagree with what I'm saying or with what you're saying. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to take a stand to say then at least if we're going to use those labels, let's do it very consciously with right. great awareness that there's a risk of moving from a situational to a dispositional attribution that can be highly problematic. Why? Because it feeds right into shame mm -hmm. and shame actually will vanquish hope. And the last thing you want is a client in recovery, Bob or Odie or anybody else, yeah. that's given up hope. So mm -hmm. be really careful around that. Yeah. So I love all you just said, and I appreciate it very much. I yeah. hope that that lands well with our audience. This is not something that I woke up today thinking about. I doubt it's something that you woke up today thinking Absolutely about. Not. And I know that our audience, <laughs> or many of you that have great differentiation around this conversation, but at the very least, can we acknowledge together that when we use labels for ourselves and particularly with others, that we exercise, exercise great sensitivity and great nuance, because it can be really problematic if we rush in uh, mm -hmm. unawares. Second part of this exercise is just a, a, a kind of a neighbor of what we just did, is we asked you to think about a time that you felt shame towards yourself. I'm gonna ask you to amplify that just for a moment. Can you think of a time where you've been thoroughly shamed by somebody else? 
somebody else who's written you off, somebody else who's decided that you're once and for all mm -hmm. uh, this or that, whether it's an addict or any other uh, uh, judgmental description, label. When you think of that, draw that to mind. Think of an instance in your life where you've been labeled. This is somebody else labeling you and asking you to reflect for just a moment on how that felt then, even how that feels now to call it back to mind and heart. So just give yourself a second to think about that. Okay, Odie, you, you, you have one you want to share? Yeah. I will share after you. So uh, I remember this one time in, I think it was like first grade, this stuff stays with us forever. Oh, yeah. Really does. Yeah. Really does. So it was during math time, so we were learning like simple addition and minus or subtraction math, and I wasn't paying attention to what the teacher was teaching at the time. And I just remember her calling on me and she asked, uh, what's I even forgot what it was, but I something simple, like what's 10 plus 10 or something mm -hmm. like that. I just, uh, she kind of caught me off guard, so mm -hmm. I just told her, I was like, I don't know. I don't yeah, know. Like, yeah. Kind of to yeah. tell yeah. her, leave me alone. Yes. But she kept pressing at it and kept Ouch. like asking, like in front of the whole class. And I just remember that as a kid, I just like, just started yeah. crying because she mm -hmm. kept pressing at it, yeah. but I didn't want to answer. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. I know looking back in retrospect, I know that wasn't her intentions. Yeah. She was just trying to kind of pushed me to answer the question, but not in the correct way. But, yeah. you know, um, yeah. I felt shameful because yeah. yeah. I wasn't able to answer yeah. it. And then yeah. I started thinking, well, yeah, so um, yeah, maybe I'm not smart. Yeah. I don't know how to do addition, subtraction. Yeah. So. Yeah. All the ways that can go. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Even in your sharing that story, it brings up for me stories of my own in <laughs> second grade. And then in fourth grade, a boy that I knew, I still remember his name, Ivan who was publicly humiliated in class. Mm. It was very wounding to watch that, much less what that was for him. Yeah. Um, we have these experiences from memory onward mm. where these happen. They lay down these pathways, and if there's enough of them, especially in relationships that really matter, like your teacher in front of your, you said it was first, first grade? I believe so, yeah. yeah. Uh, it leaves a lasting uh, uh, scar. Mm -hmm. And yeah, yeah, yeah. The example I thought of uh, is more current than first grade, but I could certainly go back to first grade. <laughs> uh, I was thinking on the way here that when I went in the hospital for detox, this is almost exactly six years ago, there was a social worker there who had a way of talking about clients, including me, that I'm sure like your first grade teacher, she might have had different intentions. Mm. But the net result for me, I can't speak for others, although I suspect, the net result for me is that she was able to, to make me feel worse than I already felt, mm. which was abysmally low, bad, towards myself. And it was the tone and the way that she talked about me. She talked about me. Let me tell a story, and I'm gonna go out of order. I'm gonna go out of order. <laughs> this is two slides from now. It fits here, so so be it. I'm going okay. to talk about Bobby <laughs> and butterflies. It's the next slide. 
<laughs> Bear with me. Okay. And I can't remember if I've shared this story here before because I can't remember. When I was eight years old, I was in third grade, there was a, a, was a science experiment that we were given. We were given a project to do. Mm -hmm. And I decided that what I was going to do was I was going to uh, catch butterflies. I was going to create a butterfly exhibit. Mm -hmm. We lived out in the country and uh, got a butterfly net <laughs> and started catching butterflies. My dad was a doctor and my dad had chloroform. I can't remember, it was in a bottle with, I think it had like uh, cotton balls in it. All I know is that I would take the butterfly that I caught, expose it to the chloroform and they would die. Mm. I think probably that was a bit intense for me in every way. And so I probably said they went to sleep, but they didn't come back awake again. <laughs> So I collected probably a dozen of these butterflies, I mean, beautiful uh, butterflies, and I think a couple moths. And actually, the, the most stunning thing, just for everybody here to know, is I caught a dragonfly. Oh, nice. That's pretty studly, <laughs> even for an eight-year-old, maybe it's place for an eight-year-old. I caught them and I, 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 uh, I euthanized them, mm. I killed them. And then I mounted them to a, a fabric. It's not unlike this fabric of friends. It's black, except it was black velvet on a little mm -hmm. board. Mm -hmm. And my dad, because he was knowledgeable about such things, helped me to label each butterfly with its Latin name. Mm -hmm. So I had all these Latin names, all these butterflies. It was quite pretty up against the black thing. They were all dead as could be. And then I took it to school, and uh, um, the feeling was was twofold. I actually won the award for the best science project. Hmm. I mean, who does that? Nice. Collects all these things, yeah. all Latinize everything, <laughs> all beautifully pinned. But I can still remember the feeling. This would be one of those early pangs of conscience, you know, you have, mm. when you have enough kind of brain power to be able to feel bad about something. I can remember feeling really bad because I lived out in the country and I loved butterflies. That's why I picked the project, but I didn't quite think ahead what it was going to be like to kill 12 butterflies mm. and pin them to this. And so whatever was pinned to my science exhibit wasn't the butterflies anymore. It was like something very removed. They were all cleverly labeled in Latin. And I remember feeling really bad about that, feeling mm. like, let me not do that again. Mm. I've had a few of those across my life, let me not do that again experiences. This is one of them. Mm. You know, the last time you, you slug somebody, that's another example for me. <laughs> uh, there's just certain things that, that I did, probably that you did, that, you, that guilt says don't do that again, and I didn't mm. do them again. Mm -hmm. The reason I go into that image is that part of what happens when others label you that teacher, however she interacted with you, or mm -hmm. label me, like what happened in the hospital. Yeah. There was a way that I felt like a butterfly pinned to a mat, mm -hmm. and it feels dehumanizing. And especially if we're already feeling vulnerable, you're first grade, mm -hmm. in front of all your classmates, you're wanting to give a good first impression about 10 plus 10, <laughs> and instead you're speechless. Yeah. And then the teacher doesn't let it go, but just goes after you. Yeah. That's a setup for disaster, mm -hmm. you know. And the same for me, being in a hospital where I'm on a hospital unit for the first time in my life. Never been in a hospital before this hospitalization. And everybody there is recovering from serious, serious addiction, including me. And then we have kind of the ringleader in terms of the staff person, the, the case coordinator, the, the social worker, mm -hmm. who is probably so burnt out in truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. that her way of dealing with us is just like being pinned to a mat as mm. a dead butterfly. And it was a killing energy. And I was pissed. Yeah. You know? And in a different state of mind, I might have been more gracious, but I wasn't in a different state of mind. I was very early in recovery. Mm. And that label th labeling thing was really offensive to me and hurtful to me and set me back, I believe. 
I was thinking of that today coming here. It was not thinking of this presentation, yeah. just how memory comes up. One day you'll be driving along and you'll say to your wife, man, I'm remembering what happened to me when I was in first grade. The stuff circulates yeah. in there. It's really, it's really deep for all of us. And so if we go back to the previous slide, dear Franz, <laughs> what shame does is it gets us to where we look at ourselves from, from an outsider's perspective. Shame would have you look at yourself the way that first grade teacher did. I don't know what her story was, mm -hmm. but for her to brutalize you that way. She was known as one of the mean teachers. Yeah, she yeah. really was, wasn't yeah. she? I had a fifth grade teacher like that. She was infamous <laughs> and she scared the crap out of everybody, including me. Miss Chetney. Miss Chetney. I remember Miss Olson. We don't forget these people, <laughs> man. Don't. <laughs> don't forget these people. And they terrorize kids. Yeah. And so the sad part is if Odie or other of your classmates took that in, and you did mm -hmm. to some extent, yeah. and then you end up making attributions to yourself about this. How could I be so stupid? I must not know math. Mm -hmm. Why can't I talk? And she's making this worse and worse. She humiliated you. Yeah. And, and the same for me. The same for me yeah. where you have a burnt out, for whatever reason, social worker who doesn't know any better than just to put people down to feel better, maybe mm -hmm. to feel better about herself. Yeah. But in the process, leaves a string of refuse, people that have been really hurt by her attitudes. And the worst of it is where you, where you, you internalize, what was her name? Miss Chetney. Miss Chetney, we're talking to you right now. Miss Olson, I don't remember the name of the social worker. Big surprise, just repressed that. But that what, the worst of it is where we begin seeing ourselves through Miss Chetney's eyes, through Miss mm. Olson's eyes. That's the worst of it, and this is really what shame does. Yeah, I'm no no longer looking at myself from inside with grace. I'm looking at myself outside through daggers of judgment. Mm -hmm. Like how could you not know what ten plus ten is? Yeah, little Odie. <laughs> How could you how could you have gotten yourself into such a fix with addiction bobby mm -hmm. and it feels yeah. horrible it feels horrible so if we move forward in the slides now what shame does to each one of us is that it infects us from inside mm -hmm. it basically sticks us in a place where we can't change there's no hope for us and as we've talked about before if you look at what shame does in the brain it actually activates the freeze response right fight flight or freeze it activates the freeze response which shuts us down mm -hmm. and so it basically stops us in our tracks or paralyzes us right. okay now that we've got everybody really depressed <laughs> somebody chimed in that this is a great topic thanks for all the important information thank you for your affirmation i appreciate it i hope some nuggets are coming through i think they're mainly coming through od today but thank you appreciate that <laughs> Let's turn this puppy around. So let's talk about, if we've been talking about what shame does and how shame can be mediated from others, internalized, and it becomes our own voice to ourselves. What about hope in the presence of others? What about hope in the presence of others? And I asked the same, I asked this question today too in front of the uh, young men that I work with in recovery. I said, who of you can think of somebody who doesn't, through thick and thin, doesn't give up hope. They look at you and they believe in you. Hmm. It's very moving, very moving. Two men right away shared, respectively, their mothers. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. yeah, really touching stories. Where somebody who had been really, really betrayed, in this case, two mothers of these young men, had not given up on them. And, hmm. and it's interesting, one of them said she kicked me out of the house. It isn't that it was like some easy grace. Right. You need to leave. You need to get out of the house. But that she didn't, she didn't give up on him. In fact, that was part of her love for him was setting boundaries. That it's not okay for you to do this, but I don't forget who you are. Yeah. 
And so it went. We went around the room. One man, it was his sister. One person, it was his wife. What it feels like to have people that, that hold hope for us. Mm -hmm. And I said, I asked into it, and the common denominator was this, is that this person sees me for who I am. They don't mm -hmm. see me for my behaviors. Yeah. It's us right back to this distinction between shame and guilt. Mm -hmm. Guilt is my behaviors, and I should feel bad about it. Shame is where you see me as nothing more than I can't add 10 plus 10. Mm -hmm. I can't be anything but clumsy. Yeah. I'm not only a bad passer at this particular moment in basketball, but I suck royally at basketball. In fact, while we're on it, I suck at everything. <laughs> I should just bench myself from life. Yeah. And that's really the move that shame does for yeah. all of us. So I was very struck by this. One gentleman shared how it is that his mother shared with him that she always sees him as a little baby. Mm. In the best sense of yeah. that is that she remembers him at birth and she sees him with that kind of innocence. That's an incredible grace. Yeah. I can hardly talk about it without crying. It's so touching to me to yeah. have these stories shared. Yeah. What I didn't share with the group today was a term from psychology for this, and you'll see why I didn't share it with the group, because it's insufferable. The next term here is transmuting internalization. Now let's all rush off and share that with our best friend, right? <laughs> like with a lot of these big phrases, big terms, it's easy enough to unpack, uh, unpack it. Transmute is to means to change. Right. To transmute is to change something. Mm -hmm. And to internalize something is to take it inside. And here's where it gets interesting is that when my mother or my sister or my beloved looks at me through eyes of grace, or you, Odie, mm -hmm. is that that has the capability of changing, transmuting us from the inside, mm -hmm. where we basically bring in that message and begin to see ourselves through our beloved's eyes. So, mm -hmm. if, for example, with your wife, yeah. to the extent that your wife administers grace to you, she's an antidote to Miss Chetney. Chetney? Yeah, Miss Chetney. She's an antidote to Miss Chetney. Every time that your wife dispenses grace your direction, which I presume is often, she's an yes. antidote against that negativity. Imagine that all, if all you ever had was Miss Chetney's in your life. God forbid. God forbid. And so there's transmuting internalization. In fact, I want you to go home to your wife tonight and thank her for the transmuting internalization that she provides in, for your new relationship. I'll tell her first thing. Yeah, I'm sure you She'll will. She'll probably look at me very puzzled. Like, well, what is that? And rightfully so. Who told you that word? Is that a cuss word? <laughs> no, I prefer another term, and I actually made this term up, but I call it hope mirrors. Mm. And I think, uh, uh, That's good. I think there are people that, that are like mirrors. They mirror hope to mm. us in our lives. Mm -hmm. There's a visual for this. If you'll show that visual, Franz. I love this image of a mirror with somebody holding out hope for us. And they, they hold out hope and it reflects it back to us. And so mm. somebody that reflects back hope to me when they see a bad pass mm. or uh, a scared boy who can't add 10 plus 10 in that moment or somebody who's suffered a lot in his life and it led to self-medication and addiction and he wants healing. Mm. Somebody who can hold out hope and remember who you really are, yeah. that you're not just a bad basketball player or a bad uh, mathematician or a bad person, mm. is that you're a human being that's gotten in this situation. Yeah. A better teacher, a less burnt out teacher, a less sadistic teacher would have mm -hmm. seen that and would have backed off. Yeah. I've taught my whole career and I've been plenty of times I put somebody, in fact it happened today, I'll ask, I'll ask you a question in the group and when you can't answer I say that's fine, who can help? I, I, don't, I don't spend one second on that. Yeah. I want to invite you and you won't <laughs> talk necessarily if I don't invite you depending on who you are. Right. So I'll invite you but I spend a nanosecond if, if, it, if it doesn't come, there's no shame in that. We mm -hmm. move back and I'll come back later. Um, I'm not burnt out. Yeah. I'm, I'm a weak condition today, but I'm not burnt <laughs> out. And a good teacher isn't. 
Mm-hmm. A good spouse isn't. A good yeah. parent isn't. And so these people are hope mirrors for us. Mm-hmm. They mirror back hope, especially significant when we can't see it ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. God willing, you had somebody over the years who would be with you, put their arm around you on the bench and say, mm-hmm. we all make mistakes, you know, and yeah. let's get you back on the court. And the same with a teacher, somebody who, who uh, when you're feeling dumb, and we all feel dumb at various points in various mm-hmm. subjects across our academics, we have a teacher that sits down with you and expresses compassion and wants to help you. Mm-hmm. It's a whole different move, and that cures a thousand ills. Yeah. yeah, yeah, these are hope mirrors for us. So as we begin to wind down today, what I want to do is ask for a second exercise, and that is I'd like you to identify a hope mirror in your life. Somebody who you've experienced holding out hope for you, particularly when it's dark, Mm. particularly when there's self-judgment within. And somebody won't buy that. Somebody won't give into that. In fact, they hold out for the obverse of that, which is, this isn't who you really are. Mm. And I remember who you really are, and I want to help you get back to that. So see if you can identify somebody in your mind's eye, to start with, that's a hope mirror for you. And having done that, then can you spend just a moment absorbing kind of down into what it feels like to be in the presence of somebody who mirrors hope? What does it feel like to be engaged with somebody who's reflecting hope to you, especially when all feels hopeless? Mm -hmm. So just think about that for a second and remember it if you can in your body. Okay, so it's back to the Bob and Odie show. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'll share, and then you share. How's that? Sounds good. Yeah. Uh, uh, since we're talking about addiction and recovery, I'm going to focus on examples from that. I love what Odie has brought here today. In addition to talking about addiction, and we're all in the soup together with addiction, that's for Dad, I'm sure, is that what we're talking about in regards to shame is universal, and it applies to a thousand different things, a million different things, including addiction and including recovery, but it's not limited to them. So we open up the conversation to every viewer, every one of us. So the example that comes to my mind, it comes readily to my mind, is that in the last half a dozen years, what it's like been like to have uh, two women in my life, my wife, Colleen, and my daughter, Amanda, particularly the two of them, it's not exclusive, but particularly the two of them, to dispense such grace. cannot imagine making it through uh, the valley uh, without people remembering who I am. Mm. Especially people I love as much as them. And for them to consistently voice that right up to the present. It's been a game changer for me. I think that when I can't find it within myself, if I can find it from without, if I can find it from people that love me and remember who I am and they can give that to me, there's some still small voice inside that will resonate to that and Mm -hmm. go, maybe that's true, Odie, maybe that's true. And if I can begin to capitalize on that and build that, that becomes the kernel that builds into Mm. fruition in terms of self-compassion. So I'm really grateful for that. How about you, Odie? Do you have an example? Yeah, so um, first being my wife, definitely, Mm. who's been Mm. through thick and thin during Mm. um, 
the ordeal. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and just the same her. same deal, like the grace and forgiveness, yeah. Yeah. knowing um, what she knows, yeah. and being able to yeah. take it and still be able to say, you know what, I get it. I forgive you for that. So um, it's totally respectful. Yeah, yeah, and then the second strongest thing, or actually maybe the first strongest thing, mm-hmm. my wife would definitely be second as uh, my faith. Mm-hmm. It's definitely yes, my faith. Absolutely. A lot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just being able to hold on to to a verse and mm-hmm. and seeing what God you know sees me as not yeah. what I see myself as. Do you so, have a verse in mind when you say that? Yeah, um, I can think of several. Uh, so he created us with a spirit of power, mm-hmm. love, and self-discipline. So mm-hmm. that's uh, that's beautiful. Yeah, that's beautiful. Where's that from? It's uh, Proverbs. I thought it was really. a proverb. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that very much. I like that very much. The one I thought of was from Romans. Mm-hmm. There is therefore now no condemnation. Yeah, and it goes on from there. But there's no condemnation. Yeah, you know that, that we've been forgiven. You know. Mm-hmm. They were asked to forgive others as we forgive ourselves. Well, mm-hmm. maybe we need to forgive ourselves like we forgive others, yeah. right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. We don't talk uh, often here. My background's in psychology, but I have a mm-hmm. tremendous respect for spirituality. Yes, thank you, Austin. Tremendous re- respect for spiritual resources, and I mm-hmm. hope that it's implied in the way that we talk about it, including responding right now, yeah. is that whatever, whatever relationship we can find to forgiveness with others and through our faith, mm-hmm. I think is really central to all of this, and I think it actually can transform one's faith to find forgiveness uh, with others and within ourselves. I think it also can be a huge boon mm. to forgiving ourselves, to believe mm. in a God, or however you understand your faith. A higher power, the way they talk about in the 12-step programs, is a higher power that grants you forgiveness mm-hmm. for who you are. Yep. And, uh, and that's not the same as cheap grace, which says it's okay for you to keep doing stuff that's right. wrong. It's yep. not about that. But it's about remembering who you are fundamentally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Re- recite to me the passage from Proverbs one more time. I like it so much. It's, um, God has given us the spirit of power, mm-hmm. love, and self. Discipline. Discipline. Mm-hmm. Self-control. Self-control. Um, yeah, there, there it is right there. It's, it's, it's God has given us this spirit, and it has these features in it. Mm-hmm. And that's who you really are. Yeah. That's, who God, that's what God's given us. That's what God sees. That's what God remembers us as. Mm-hmm. And when we forget that, we do well to realign ourselves with God's view of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And when we, can, when we can be with earthly messengers of that, primarily like with your wife, yeah. that strengthens that. And so uh, all the more reason. In fact, let me suggest what comes next, and then I'm going to re- address a question that came from outside. What can I do to increase contact, both in terms of my faith, your mm-hmm. faith, right. as well as with people that that are oxygenating, people mm-hmm. that give oxygen in terms of grace, yep. your wife, mine, my daughter, mm-hmm. the, the examples that we have in our lives, what can I do to increase contact? Because that's a direct conduit to healing mm-hmm. of yeah. this shame that we're talking about. Let me uh, pull up for just a second. There's a comment here. Any suggestions for when you can't find it from inside yourself and also not from anybody, anyone outside yourself? You know what, I, I, there's, th- th- uh, thank you for the question. There have been plenty of times I couldn't find it inside myself and I had to go outside myself to find it in another. And I have to tell you what uh, Odie just said right now really resonates for me. There have been times where I felt, one of the things that happens with shame is that 
I give up on myself and I give up on you giving up on, I give up on you not giving up on me. Let's <laughs> right. Mm, so I give yeah. up on myself and then I assume that you have the same attitude towards me that I have. And so it blocks off anything that would change that. Mm -hmm. And in the very darkest nights for me, it was just me and God, mm. just me and God. Right. There's a period of time I remember this very well. This was uh, about nine, 10 years ago where I spent the better part of two years studying the book of Job. <laughs> Mm, that's a great book. <laughs> and being completely identified with Job and just praying for mercy. And it took a while for it to come, as it did for Job. Yeah. But I can remember where there just didn't feel like there was any resource from without. And yeah. so I, I had to find spiritual resource. And so whatever uh, spiritual form you use, whatever faith tradition you come out of, I don't think this requires being in any specific faith myself. I think it's the nature of spiritual resource that you find it in a way that works for you. And so that's... That's one thought. I don't want to brush by the question. What happens, what happens if I can't find it from inside and I can't find it from outside? I think, you can, I think it's implied in what I just said to Odie. I think you can help also to realize that if I don't see it coming from outside, mm -hmm. that may be a function of the lenses through which I'm seeing. Mm -hmm. There are people that would judge us. There'll be people that judge you. And yeah. I'm not trying to pussyfoot around that. There'll be people that write you off. Yeah. They'll write me off. I've had people write me off. That's very painful. Mm -hmm. But what I'm struck by after the fact is that there are any number of people that didn't write me off that I assumed that did. Mm -hmm. I recently corresponded with a couple that I care a lot about, and this is all these years later. In fact, I just had a friend reach out to me uh, by email from 30 years ago and has read about my story online, wow. and she's, she didn't write me off. Hmm. But in the old days, the 90% days, I would assume that she and everybody else would have written me off. Hmm. This couple hasn't written me off, and they just wrote me yesterday. They want me to come visit with them. Hmm. But I assume that they did. And so I just want to hold out for the possibility that when we've given up on ourselves and assume that everybody else sees us from that outsider's perspective, mm -hmm. everybody else pins us like a butterfly to a mat, that if there's any part inside of ourselves that can dispute that, mm -hmm. that may not be accurate. Yeah. And hold out for the possibility that there might be people that have less judgment towards ourselves than we do ourselves. Mm -hmm. That opens a slight crack in the door where I might come to you and mm -hmm. ask for your grace. Yeah. Yeah. I hope that helps. I don't mean in any way to make simple or light what is challenging and dark. Uh, it's very difficult. Shame, shame is an absolutist kind of regime, mm -hmm. and it's black and white. I'm either okay or I suck, yeah. 100%. <laughs> and it doesn't allow for bad passes. Yeah. It doesn't allow for uh, unsolved equations. It doesn't allow for addiction. And so we've got to find some other path, and that path is the path of self-compassion. Mm -hmm. And, I, and I, when I say self-compassion, I don't separate that from spiritual compassion from God. Right. How, how are we able to appropriate and experience and taste forgiveness? That's what matters. Both really important. Both really important. Mm -hmm. uh, I think this is, it derives from the, the, the final question. I want to thank the questioner. There's not a one of us that's honest with ourselves if we've been set upon by shame that doesn't know that feeling of being completely alone in it. Yeah. Uh, it. It does evoke the, the story of Job for me. Mm -hmm. It also uh, evokes the story of Christ to me. Mm. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Mm. This is yeah. a person who's been forsaken by human beings, his disciples. They forgot about him, they disowned him. Mm. And then he's on the cross and he feels, he feels abandoned by his God. Yeah. And so there it is, the archetype of abandonment amidst shame. Mm -hmm. And 
The wonderful thing about the Christian story and any other spiritual tradition worth its salt is that some version of resurrection, of healing, of restoration is central, is central to the faith traditions. Yeah. I don't do this. This is the first time I've done this, but I have a homework assignment for everybody. <laughs> Most of all, me. <laughs> Physician, heal thyself. <laughs> Could you commit this week to being a hope mirror for someone else? You've got a taste for how valuable it is inside, right? Yeah. It, it, uh, it makes a big difference in our lives to receive this kind of mirroring from others. And can, can I commit this week to working through my automatic reactions to you? I'm just using this example. Mm -hmm. And you doing the same with me so that when you listen to me or I listen to you, I listen to hear who you really are, mm -hmm. the way your wife listens to you, mm -hmm. through hard work, I'm sure of it, mm -hmm. the way that God listens to you. Is there a way that I can be that for someone else this week? Yeah. What is that saying? I see it on license plates uh, by Gandhi. Is it, be the change you want to see in the world? Mm -hmm. is, that, is it close? Yeah, that's pretty. I was thinking of it this morning around this. Yeah, be a hope mirror for someone else. Be the change that you'd like to see in the world. Be that for someone else. What a world, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, so thank you for joining us today. We've we've worked on restoring hope, and I really appreciate, Odie, what you've added. You always add so much, but I really appreciate what you've added, both in terms of your own stories, your own vulnerabilities, your own healing, as well as drawing on spiritual as well as relational resources. I fully, uh, fully support uh, our inclusivity here. Thank so thank you for joining us uh, in talking about restoring hope today. Someone has written this. Someone wrote that they love Odie's humility and his faith. I do too. Thank you. Thank you. So many religious addicts. Do you think that religious addiction can be biologically based? Serotonin, dopamine, and balance. That's an interesting question. I'm going to go very short with that, but I will respond to that. I have a dear friend, dear, dear friend, Guy Duplessis, who lives in Cape Town, South Africa, and he's writing a book right now on what he calls ideology ad addiction. Ideology addiction. I can't even say it. It's so big. And it is inclusive of religious ideologies and of political ideologies and so on. And he looks at it as just exactly like any other addiction. Mm -hmm. And my guess is the brain circuitry of any addiction, whether it's a behavioral addiction like addiction to a belief system where I impose it on you mm -hmm. and you doggone better well believe it or I'm going to kill you. And God will be happy about that. Whether it's that kind of addiction to an ideology or addiction to any behavior. We've mm -hmm. talked about behavioral addictions. I really appreciate your including yourself in that. And substance addictions. Mm -hmm. The biology is very similar of those. And so it stands to reason to me that if I've got a serotonin or a dopamine deficiency, both of which are associated with pleasure and self-regulation, mm -hmm. and if I can find a belief in a superior being that makes me special, and ups my dopamine and serotonin levels, you can well imagine that I'd be very drawn to that. And this isn't to diss any addiction because the reigning hypothesis in addiction theory right now is self-medication theory, is that we self-medicate with our addictions mm -hmm. to, to rebalance something that feels out of sync. So the answer would be yes, it is possible. And what I appreciate is you're leading off by talking about Odie's humility and his faith is that Anything can be taken to extreme, and that includes religious faith, 
to where it becomes actually cruel and counter to its own purposes. And Odi manifests or models a kind of humility. You're absolutely right that it feels very organic to include it here. And that uh, um, so many of the things, particularly behaviors that we become addicted to, start off as something that's relatively positive mm -hmm. and it just loses balance. And so it's about keeping things in balance, I, I, I would imagine. And uh, I appreciate the question. It's a good question. Hope I've given at least some justice here. Uh, you're welcome to write me afterwards, and Austin will be happy to forward your comments to me because I'm willing to engage. There's a lot more there, and I can actually connect you with Guy Duplessis in South Africa because this is his passion right now. Mm -hmm. Next week, we'll be looking at shame as a signal to the self. We've, we, we, uh, we're critical about shame in terms of its, its capacity to paralyze us, but there's also some useful aspects of shame. I mentioned last week a brand new book, it's sitting on my shelf at home, The Upside of Shame. Mm -hmm. And they're looking at possible benefits of shame, and I'll talk about that some more next week when we talk about using the shame, using our shame as a signal to ourselves that something needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. The following week will be my favorite of this series, and that'll be where we actually do a self-compassion or self-forgiveness exercise. We'll build that practice right into our, our uh, podcast here. And the goal is to serve as a foundation for shame resistance. Mm -hmm. Our series is on unshaming, and we can build resistance to shaming. We can actually become unshamed over time with practice. And we'll be doing a practice that I found very useful personally, as well as with clients of mine. Any final questions? Oh, thank you as always. I hope your shoulder is feeling better, Dr. Weathers. You know what? This is the best I've felt all day. It has a lot to do with <laughs> Odie's presence and with kind uh, facilitators like France and Austin. Thank you, guys. And thank you all for coming in today. Yeah, it feels good. I'm going to go home and rest now. <laughs> thank you for coming. I appreciate it. Any questions that you have, you can send to Ask Addiction Specialist. Austin will forward those to me. Recommend that you review our videos. We have a whole series now on shame. If you've missed any one of those, go back because each one is chock full of, of uh, informative material, I hope. And, uh, and also, you can, uh, you can come to my website. I think you have my website up there, Franz. Uh, there it is right there. You can write to me on my website, and I'll get back to you. There's a place in the contact me. You can write an email to me, and many of you do, and I'll get back to you there, okay? I want to thank you all for joining us today. Franz, uh, Odie, I really appreciate you joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks for appreciate having me. It. Again. Yeah. <laughs> Blessings. We'll see you next week as we look at shame as a signal to the self. Take good care and have a really good unshaming week. Bye-bye. Thank you.